morning and welcome to Rising. We've got an excellent show for you all today. Our panel will discuss the police presence in Montgomery County, Maryland's public school districts, why parents are divided on both sides of the aisle. We'll also hear from a union tradesman that says Democrats have abandoned the working class and left them without a political party. But first, yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci confirmed that the U.S. is out of the pandemic phase of COVID. Let's watch. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are. What we hope to do, I don't believe, and I've, and I've spoken about this widely, we're not going to eradicate this virus. If we can keep that level very low and intermittently vaccinate people, and I don't know how often that would have to be, Judy, that might be every year, that might be longer in order to keep that level low. But right now, we are not in the pandemic phase in this country. Well, that's nice to hear him admit. How about that? It's nice to hear, but it would be nice to have some specifics on what it even means to be in the pandemic phase of the country. Are we talking about the number of raw infections? Are we talking about the fact that we have different kind of tracking standards that we've had in the past and it's difficult to even assess what's going on? You know, are we talking about, are we considering the possibility of future variants coming down the pike? I mean, I, I just at this point don't know what to do with any of this information anymore. Right. I mean, deaths have been low. Well, in D.C., where we live, deaths have been extremely, extremely, extremely low for like almost a full year now. Mm-hmm. I mean, for months, for months. Yeah, the, 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 the daily, the, the weekly average yeah. is like one or two deaths. Yeah. Or zero. So haven't we then been out of the pandemic phase unless it's just cases? And we know cases is a useless metric. Yeah, it's frustrating to see him come on TV at this point because you would like, I think a lot of people in good faith are craving some genuine understanding about what's going on. But there is none and there hasn't been any for a while. It's felt like all of the messaging has been politically motivated for a very long time. And so this just feels like empty bluster that's seems more political almost because it is so empty. We're heading into obviously a midterm election year. We know that a big part of what Joe Biden's, you know, claims were when he was, you know, getting into office in 2020 was that he was going to resolve the pandemic. So it does feel like every comment from the administration has that veneer of this is all making us feel like everything is fine and everything is over. And I know that there's plenty of people on, on the right who would love that to be the case because that is part of their broader political narrative, but I am distrustful of all of these authority figures, frankly, and I just would like to know more specifically what's going well, on. And why did he say, so Fauci said that he's not going to attend the White House correspondence mm-hmm. dinner stuff out of fears of COVID, which then I think clashes entirely with what he just said, which is fine. I don't even know why he, why would he would go to this? I, I don't, I, again, this event shouldn't even be held in the first place because sure. it's stupid, not sure. because of health risks, but because the event is stupid and Fauci doesn't need to be involved in it, so I don't care that he's going to skip out on part Partying and that whole, you know, the whole uh, watching uh, the political class and the celebrity class party massless and take all sorts of COVID risks that they then disdain other people for taking, you know, while the serving people are masked up. And but does that give you any pause? Does it make you concerned that there are, for example, it's not just, you know, Fauci not wanting to go to a mass event. You know, if he's the expert and he doesn't want to go, does that make you feel at all like maybe he knows something that I don't know and we're all being cattle herded back into public spaces because we have to get businesses open and there's economic reasons for us to want to keep going on. You see Kamala Harris getting COVID and taking more time away from the office and the CDC recommendations. It's a little bit, you know, do what I say, not what I do from the experts in the room. I get what you're saying. Now, I I think they... Uh, they enjoy the performative over caution still 
Mm -hmm. Like, look, now I'm going to wear two masks. I'm going to. It's that kind of attitude among. That's what. That's what uh, the certain a certain kind of political constituency on the uh, not on the left, but in the democratic circles demands. I guess is just absolute fealty to what I think is gone way too far levels of caution from epidemiologist type people? Well, some people are questioning how much there is even really a partisan divide when you look at how people have been behaving since the end of the mask mandates. I was just traveling this week and saw a couple of airports. Did you get to fly? I I flew. I I flew too. It seems like it is true that most people, it can't be, you know, even if you presume that the ideological split on an airplane or an airport is about 50-50, it would seem that a lot of Liberals yeah. certainly have abandoned masks. You know, there were very few people who were masked either on the plane or in the public spaces. That was true of my my flight as well. That was true in Reagan uh, Airport, which actually surprised me. I, I thought there would be more continued masking because I remember when the the CDC and even Team Blue kind of broadly agreed that, okay, you don't actually have to wear a mask outside. Mm. People still did it here mm. in, in, like, half or maybe close to half. I remember because I counted once as on my way to work <laughs> and I posted about it on Twitter and everyone like screamed at me that I was harassing people by just like counting whether they were wearing a mask or not. And they're like, well, that wasn't really an experiment. I'm like, sorry, I didn't, I didn't ask the Ministry of Science for permission to count this. It was one of my most ridiculous um, Twitter experiences. But anyway, Fauci has also responded to questions about Dr. Deborah Burks, who claimed that she, Fauci, and other doctors in the Trump administration agreed they would all resign at once if one person was removed from the COVID task force. Now, Fauci said to a New York City radio station, quote, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not going to get involved in those kinds of comments. And later in the interview, Fauci added that he's planning to stay in his role Till we're no longer in the pandemic phase, which left some people obviously speculating that that might be coming up in the near future since he said we're out of it. So, yes, I would. It's time to put this guy out to pasture. That, that certainly feels right. The, the, that, the phrase end of the pandemic phase is completely meaningless outside of that context. So it does seem like a pretty clear signal. It's curious to me why he would even want to hang around any longer, given that he can't seem to make. Can't seem to make anybody happy. And he, he can't even go to the party. I mean, he was, <laughs> he's hanging on to be able to attend. The, do you think he li- he likes? I mean, he 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 was he was transformed into the hero of the pandemic, mm-hmm. and that for the first year, maybe it wasn't quite a year. He it was even a broad bipartisan right. worship of him. He didn't become a politically toxic figure for Republicans until kind of the kind of the very end of the Trump. So what uh, do you attribute that shift? I think everything that happens has to eventually be filtered through our our tribal political sphere. So, so this was inevitable that he would be, he has to be a figure of the right or of the left, of Team Blue or Team Red. No one can be a figure of both. Right now, Elon Musk is being sorted into the team, a Team Red figure despite being like, in environmental, <laughs> maker of better environmental cars and all that stuff. So, okay. Like, okay, you, right, you, could dis- again, you could say he belo- but right now it's happening in real time where everyone is saying, okay, this is a figure of this person. No one can be in both camps. You have to be on one side or the other. So it just takes our system a little while to, to get the sense of someone and figure out which side they belong in. But there so was that a just shift, took a while. Right? I mean, do you think that what caused him to not be seen through a specifically left partisan ideological lens was simply because he was 
the guy in charge during the Trump administration and the shift basically correlated with Biden becoming president? Or do you think there was something more specific, maybe the news about the misinformation about masking early on or something like that, that uh, diminished public trust? Well, obviously that was the actual catalyst, but there always would have been something. Mm -hmm. There always would have been something Mm -hmm. where eventually he comes out being just a figure of Democrats of health officials of, of what I term Team Blue because mm. you can't you cannot be in both bubbles. Well, there is the rock. Be, yeah, there there are very 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 few people who can who can be liked by which is not historically true, right? You could mm. you know you, fifty years ago, even twenty years ago, FDR? ten years ago, mm-hmm. you can have you could have political figures or quasi political figures who are liked and respected by people on both sides. That just isn't true anymore. No, it's just there's not also true. there's also Bernie. <laughs> Well, Bernie is very much a Team Blue figure. Well, look, you when you look at interviews with people on the right, what they often say about Bernie Sanders is, look, I don't agree with his prescription on how to fix the world, but I believe that he believes it, and I believe he's a good guy acting in good faith. I like Bernie. He's a popular guy both in the Senate and in the streets. That's what you get for being a political independent oh, for 40 years maybe. in Congress. <laughs> maybe. We'll, we'll debate Bernie at another time, but in other news, the Daily Mail is reporting that the CDC and FDA officials altered COVID guidance and even suppressed findings related to the virus due to political pressure. Federal investigators spoke to more than a dozen directors who worked at the agencies and exposed that political interference in scientific reports pointing to fears that research was tampered with. Whistleblowers said they did not speak up at the time for fear of retaliation. So I skimmed this uh, Daily Mail story and I actually... I, it didn't make me. It made me think. Okay, what? What's is that wrong? Like mm. the C, the CDC, the, the 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 agency is not democratically elected or account. Right? It should be co- accountable mm-hmm. to the people vis-a-vis the political process in some sense. Like I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm not outraged by some of our government official, like our our elected officials, even the Biden administration, saying, "Excuse me." What you're telling us is insane and nobody's going to do it and we need better guidance from you or like this is like that that should happen. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of having an independent agency is that you should, you know, they've been granted the authority to have independent trust because something like science shouldn't be political. But there is always a concern about checks and balances. And that's why there, there are, you know, procedures to take in the context of administrative law and guidance. And part of what we're talking about with the mask mandates is one of those checks and balances on an an administrative body. You know, you are still subject to that kind of censure and a legal process. So it's difficult. Everything. Sometimes we talk about this person having overreach and that person having overreach and this person, you know, overextending their authority. The entire world is checks and balances. There's no benevolent dictator who's ever going to come down and make all the right decisions all the time. Do you remember when health officials said it was okay to take a vacation from following COVID caution in order to protest with the Black Lives Matter during the summer of well, Robbie, racial justice your, your reckoning? Team, you remember that? Your team wearing a mask outside doesn't make any sense anyway, so I would think that you would be down with that. Oh, I was, da- no, I was, I was excited. I got, I got my sign out. I said, yes, let's, let's set some 7-Elevens on fire. COVID is over. Robbie. And then... And then they took it back. It was yeah, only I, allowed for that. So I do think that there's obviously an inconsistency in the way that some conservative protests were covered as, oh, my God, it's a viral contagion, whereas Exercising human sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was literally described. It was, it, was, it was framed differently. At the same time, I do think, whether or not you think it was effective, there was a degree of mask wearing that was happening and in, in, you know, spacing out that was happening 
at progressive protests, and you have had yeah, the mass spreader of events. They were shouting. They were singing. They you, were. I know they you, were wearing masks. You do but. have these super spreader events that seem to have emerged repeatedly, not just from conservative protests. I don't think that there's any documentation of that, but these official conservative events where there is this pomp and circumstance, this COVID theater, which again, we've seen on the left as well, mm. but like in the State of the Union, for instance, but this COVID theater where you have Donald Trump taking down half of Congress, it seems, and some future Supreme Court justices. the Rose Garden Massacre? Right, yeah. right. Um, and that is also not a good model to be setting for the general public. So again, like I don't mean to both sides yeah. this, but it does seem to be the case that I understand completely why anybody on any part of the political spectrum would feel like they can't rely on anybody but their own research. Yeah, that was the moment I thought for certain Trump was going to lose, was when that the everybody got sick at the, it was like, how could anyone look at our government right now and say they can they have any plan to stop this virus when they all just got it? That right. Was a, right. Not a good not a good political moment for them. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what's on your radar next, Brianna. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, student debt cancellation has been the focus of a great deal of attention recently because it is one of a short list of action items Biden can actually implement without soliciting votes from Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. It's not because it's the program that helps the neediest. It's not even the way I'd address student lo- the student loan crisis if I had my druthers. We need to address the cost of college by making public colleges and universities tuition-free. And heck, if I had my way, we'd also be offering retroactive payments to folks who've paid off their debts. But I don't run the world, unfortunately, and Biden is limited to doing what he can do using executive authority, which means student debt cancellation. Because over 90% of student debt is held by the federal government, he can use the same authority, which has enabled him and Trump to pause student debt to cancel it outright. Over 44 million Americans have student debt, including a growing number of seniors, people exploited by for-profit colleges, and folks with debt from vocational degrees. Republicans and corporate Democrats have limited Biden's ability to provide relief to other populations in other ways. Say you're someone who would prefer to see aid going to families. I might agree. But with $225 billion in child care canceled, $225 billion in paid family leave canceled, and $200 billion in universal pre-K all killed along with the human infrastructure bill, the best we can do for families is make sure that parents in those families aren't still paying their loans off as they save for their children's education. Now, the news this week is that it seemed for a second that Biden was actually coming around on this. After months of pretending he didn't have the authority to do what he was already doing, this week it was reported that Biden told the Congressional Hispanic Caucus that he's considering significant student debt cancellation, leading some to hope that not only was Biden finally getting serious about his campaign promise to cancel at least $10,000 of debt for everyone, but that he might actually cancel $50,000 or more. Now, his administration is already walking this back, but not soon enough to prevent all of the most corrupt big bank shills on Twitter from squealing like stuck pigs all day yesterday. Let's run through some of the worst takes, shall we? First up, founder of one of the world's leading private equity firms, 2012 presidential hopeful, and owner of an elevator for his cars, a real band of the people, Mitt Romney. Romney trended on Twitter yesterday for tweeting, quote, Desperate polls call for desperate measures. Dems consider forgiving trillions in student loans. Other bribe suggestions? Forgive auto loans? Forgive credit card debt? 
forgive mortgages and put a wealth tax on the super rich to pay for it all? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Not much from my perspective. Sounds like a good plan. Now, thoroughly dissecting everything wrong with this tweet would make this script longer than Grey's Anatomy, but let's just start with the obvious. Everything he describes here is good and should happen. Making good things happen for working people is not a bribe. That's just good politics. So for example, credit card companies have been notoriously exploitative and progressives like Bernie Sanders and AOC have proposed legislation to keep banks like the ones Romney served when he was making his millions from exploiting consumers with hidden fees and usurious interest rates, which average a whopping 17.71%. Mitt Romney is the kind of person who sees bailing out consumers as a problem, even while he's mum on the federal bailouts he's received. He tut-tuts helping students who can, detect, who can deduct a maximum of $2,000 of student loan interest from their taxes, and only then if you make under $60,000 a year, even while he can deduct the full interest on his million-dollar home. It's good, apparently, when the laws are designed to cut the rich a break, but God forbid working families get the same benefit. As rising guest Andrew Perez pointed out, if forgiving student debt was a massive giveaway to the rich, politicians would have done it already. This caller into C-SPAN this week put it perfectly. But I have a different take on this. Okay. I think student loan debt should be wiped out for this reason. Two years ago, they passed the Paycheck Protection Program in Congress. Businesses, which are people, they got billions of dollars. Then they used them billions of dollars, which wasn't their money, to pay their workforce for six months, and then it was extended. They turned around and forgave their debt, and they also let them keep all their profits. So why is it good enough for the business but not good enough for the student? That's my question. That's called fairness and equality. Adam Minsky. Yeah. Well said, sir. Well said. Now, to be clear, Romney's far from the only hypocrite in the bunch. Tom Cotton, self-styled working man's hero, asked, quote, why should a trucker who didn't go to college have to pay off a lawyer's student loan debt? But if he knew anything about trucking, he'd know that student debt is a problem for truck drivers too. Did you know that the vocations corporate conservatives pretend to respect often require real training and that that training costs money? Did you know that the average truck driving school requires folks to pay between three dollars and $7,000 up front? And that's not including housing, meals, and transportation. Cotton doesn't want to pay for truckers to get an education. So he's pretending that they will be paying for a lawyer's degree. But the reality is, of course, that nobody is paying in a traditional sense. What we're talking about is federally held debt being canceled. You know how no one is paying right now because of the student debt moratorium? Cancellation simply means that that status quo is made permanent. And to the extent that anyone should pay to permanently fix the underlying problems with the system by making public education and vocational programs free? Well, let's revisit one of the excellent suggestions from Romney's tweet, tax the rich. Remember, Elizabeth Warren's modest wealth tax involved a two cent tax on every dollar earned over $50 million in wealth, just two cents on a dollar over 50 million. If a billionaire dropping 44 billion on an app doesn't suggest to you that a modest wealth tax is in order to make sure we have a well-educated populace that can, you know, actually help build the Mars colony we're all dreaming about, I'm not sure what will. Now, finally, here's my favorite take, this time offered up by another faux populist, J.D. Vance. 
a man dripping with so much contempt for poor white people that even the great Glenn Close couldn't reform the movie adaptation of his life story. Now, according to Vance, forgiving student debt is a massive windfall to the rich, to the college educated, and most of all, the corrupt university administrators of America. Okay, now, if there were ever an argument to fund free public college and hobble private institutions like Yale, Vance's alma mater, this complete turd of bad logic Vance is dropping here is it. <laughs> now, I want you to really lean in, really listen to what I'm about to say. I think you'll get it intuitively. Rich people don't take out debt to go to college. Rich people don't have to. Think about it. Interest rates when I was going to law school were about 8%. Why on earth would anyone who could pay the sticker price for school, about $180,000 at the time, sign up for an interest rate that would have them pay over $80,000 more than the cost of tuition over the course of an average 10-year repayment period? And to be clear, most people take much longer than 10 years. Millions of Americans who happen not to have rich parents are paying more for their education than the kids whose parents can pay upfront. Vance's argument ends up amounting to saying, I only think that rich kids should become doctors and lawyers. I only think rich kids should get a four-year degree. And that's not the populist egalitarian argument he thinks it is. That's the argument of someone who got the benefit of a Yale education and wants to pull the ladder up behind him. That is an argument you should ignore. Now, Biden's latest remarks do seem to be a departure from what he said in the past, and I understand why folks are hopeful. But I am a student of Biden logic, and Biden historically subscribes to the school of reverse empathy, e.g., it was tough for me, so it should be tough for you too. During the campaign, in a move that I found to be shocking in his cruelty, he used his deceased son's medical bills as a justification for why we shouldn't have Medicare for all. He is an expert in weaponized empathy, using the fact that he can relate to voters through shared tragedy to justify not doing all he could to help them. This is why student debt cancellation advocates should not let up now. This is the moment to put the pressure on. The fact that all of these corporate-funded politicians who suckle at the teat of big banks are squealing means activists, workers, students, and their parents have finally turned up the heat. Private loan servicers, banks, and others who are making a profit off of this regressive education tax are lobbying politicians hard to keep this corrupt system in place. And the government has an interest in keeping education and healthcare out of reach so it can continue to drive young people into the armed forces, not out of a sense of duty or patriotism, not because they believe we are fighting just wars, but because they don't know how else to get healthcare or to go to school. Tom Cotton and Romney are right. There is a class war afoot, but it's not being waged between lawyers and truckers. It's millionaire investment firm founders, come politicians, against you and your children's future. Now, Robbie, I gotta say, I had a good time on the internet yesterday. Because okay. anybody who knows me knows that I love talking about student debt. And when we're having these active conversations, because so many politicians wigged out yesterday on the internet, it reveals a lot of the faulty thinking afoot uh, that's been parroted and, and kept these kind of policies under the radar for years. The, the point of this, <clears throat> where I do agree with you, 
the kind of like the Romney tweet, the kind of what are we going to do now? Bail out all these. Because <laughs> well, some of that we have done that. Like we yes. bail out the auto industry. Yes. We bailed out, you know, rich, the too big to fail banks, all that. Now, I was against all those policies. So I think <laughs> I'm being consistent. But I see why someone of a progressive bent would say, well, the government makes it work helps out all these other more rich and powerful, these industries, there's all sorts of subsidizing going on and helping. And if they screw up, they, they get a loan, uh, they get a bailout. So I, I get why uh, there would be a little bit of, okay, but not for... Yes, businesses for, to the point of the caller and to CNN, um, so much of the PPP funds, banks made a yeah. huge profit on all of that. But, again, but also the middle class. You know, so many politicians are allergic to saying working class or poor. You never hear politicians talking about the working class or poor. When, when people are running for election, they talk about their benefits that they're going to give to the middle class. All of a sudden, the left, we always want to talk about the working class and poor. We always want to talk about the fact that 40% of Americans can't come up with a $400, $400 for an emergency, much less $7,000 for trucking school. But the second any policy can touch the middle class from the left's perspective. Suddenly, all of these middle class people, the Dodgers and lawyers that are normally the focus of so much attention from um, elite Democrats and Republicans alike, the Schumers of the world who say for every working class vote we'll lose, we'll pick up one in Connecticut or whatever. All of a sudden, it's anathema to want to help people who are making $100,000 a year. Now, do I think that, as I said up top, should be the priority of um, you know, political focus. No, and obviously the overwhelming majority of people who have student debt don't make that much money. And they try to make, you know, I don't know, someone like me, the, the poster child for who's going to get helped here. But it's also worth pointing out that the government picks winners and losers all the time and has rigged the system in many ways to benefit the middle class in a way that has left other people behind. So to the mortgage interest point, I was livid when I discovered, after starting to pay back my student loans, that if I were to have bought a million dollar house, now the numbers have been revised to $750,000. Oh, restraint. But if I were to have bought a $750,000 house, I could write off that entire interest amount on my taxes. Now, if I have a $750,000 or $180,000 student loan, I can write off a maximum of $2,000 of that on my taxes. The system is rigged over and over again to get tax breaks for kids and tax breaks for people to buy homes. And I'm not against that, even though I do not have a home. I, I do not have any kids. But for some reason, it's completely normalized to have a, a very selfish, narrow um, perspective when it comes to student debt, as though the same incentives to get an educated workforce don't exist as to encourage people to have kids, to encourage people into home ownership. Right. I mean, I would quibble with some of the, I, I think we have overly encouraged having an educated workforce to the detriment of actually having a workforce because everyone has to go to college for so long well, and get themselves into debt. And there's a kind of credentialism to it. I agree with that 100%. I think that we need to have free public colleges and, and universities because the hierarchical system that people like J.D. Vance are trying to maintain, you know, a Harvard degree, a Yale degree doesn't mean anything if everybody can go. The whole right. system is built on exclusion and the, the costs play into that. But I do think everyone should have an opportunity to go either to college or vocational school, if that's what they want. And the decision whether to go or not to go should not be based on how rich your parents are, because that's a way just to entrench our class hierarchies. And nobody should be sitting around saying, I think only Joe Biden's kids get to go to Penn because he gave some big donation there and has, has an honorary chair. You know, if you have a problem with Penn, let's get rid of Penn. I'm, I'm all for abolishing the Ivy League, which is going to make me really popular in my reunion this year. <laughs> it's going to make you popular with some, some conservatives who say, say the uh, college endowment should be seized. And uh... Look, I, I'm all for it. Harvard having more money than most countries in the world is a real problem, especially Weird. since they're still charging 
kids tuition, <laughs> which is what I tell people when they call me to see if I want to donate uh, yeah. to the alumni fund. Yeah, don't uh, just just ignore the <laughs> alumni fundraising pitch this year, please. All right, well, we'll have more rising after this. Stick around. So yesterday I wrote about the media's hypocrisy when it comes to writing hit pieces in reference to Elon Musk, who we know is set to acquire Twitter. The Washington Post has accused him of targeting Twitter employees after Musk offered some criticism of Twitter's top lawyer, Vijaya Gad. Now, Gad, who she's appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience, is notorious for pushing Twitter's former CEO, Jack Dorsey, to stop all political advertising on the platform. Uh, she was involved in the decision to remove Donald Trump and, according to Politico, a lead architect of the policy approach that led Twitter to clamp down on misinformation. Her hands are a little bit um, all over the Hunter Biden New York Post debacle as well. Mm. Reports of Gad crying during a meeting about the Musk acquirement surfaced from Politico, to which former riser and current Breaking Point host Sagarin Jetty responded saying, Vijaya Gad, the top censorship advocate at Twitter who famously gaslit the world on Joe Rogan's podcast and censored the Hunter Biden laptop story, is very upset about the Elon Musk takeover. To which Musk responded saying, quote, Suspending the Twitter account of a major news organization for publishing a truthful story was obviously incredibly inappropriate. The Washington Post then published an article saying that Musk was targeting employees after simply agreeing with Sagar's criticism of Gad, who's a very well-connected lawyer in liberal circles. Seven hours after, afterward, Elon replied to Sagar, and the Washington Post article said Sagar did not immediately respond to a request for comment, even though the Washington Post had asked Sagar if he had a concern that mentioning a specific Twitter executive could result in an tax on that executive. What are the responsibilities here? For example, one of the commenters on the tweets made racist comments against Gad, others said she should be fired. So this is all questions they had for Sagar at apparently 2 a.m. You can see he shared the uh, the uh, email there. So Sagar said he had no idea, obviously, that you know Elon would get involved, and he accused the post of a smear job. So if that was confusing, here's the sequence of events. Sagar said, you know, called out this top Twitter official uh, who has taken a very kind of censorship-inclined mm-hmm. mindset, and then Elon responded, agreeing with that criticism and saying, yes, the Hunter Biden, blocking the Hunter Biden story was bad. And then the Washington Post says, you know, how dare you target these employees for harassment? And my question is, if just calling them out is targeting them for harassment, then is not the Washington Post, by publishing this article, calling out Elon for harassment or Sagar or like house? And then suddenly, how dumb is that? <laughs> if you're just saying, expressing valid criticism of someone counts as harassment, and, it, and it's valid criticism because Twitter admitted it's valid criticism. Right. Twitter, Jack Dorsey said that decision was wrong. Right. So Elon Musk is taking the position that Twitter itself takes about that decision, and that's harassment? Yeah. It's Isn't that crazy? Especially, we're talking about Sagar, you know, someone who's a media person, a journalist. Right, former host of the show. Yeah, a, a, a news story of a senior official at Twitter. The idea that that constitutes harassment, I and mean, then moreover, the idea that somebody else is perhaps legitimately harassing or like bigoted or hate-filled comment can be attributed to him because they randomly made it on the internet. I had Bernie. I had Bernie Bro flashback. I mean, that's yes. a big Bernie Bro issue. The idea that somebody somewhere is mad online and and says that they agree with you suddenly means you're responsible for their behavior. It's an untenable standard, and it's a standard that is always disproportionately applied in one direction. There was a lot. There were plenty of attacks that came down the pike toward, for example, 
the, the women of color on the Bernie campaign. There was never any of that same kind of outrage. And it does feel like a kind of weaponized grievance culture that people are exploiting here in this moment. Yeah. And the Washington, I, I specifically want to call out the Washington Post for this because this is, there's now a couple examples of them doing this kind of thing where they try to make the story about how someone is harassing someone yeah. by talking about them. But then they are talking about that person. Right. With a Why does that not count? Right. We, are they, like, <laughs> when, the Washington Post. when you do that, it, it, so at least we have to have a, like a nuanced. Con- so why is it different when you do it? This was kind of the subtext of the, the whole libs of TikTok mm-hmm. uh, article from last week, which yeah, I, I'm not saying there was it, it was not legitimate to report on that account. It is an influential account. I think I might have made a, a different decision about whether the person you actually mm-hmm. named them because it, incidentally, they were not uh, it was not their identity was not very important to the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but the, and now there's a lot of I, you know, har- harassment is how it's being described of the person who wrote that article. And I find some of it to be yeah, quite bill, vile. A billboard and in Times Square is a little extra. <laughs> absolutely. I thought that was disgusting. But certainly the person behind the libs of TikTok account has gotten harassment and death threats because of this so, so if if we take if harassment is always wrong, exactly what the media is doing is wrong. So obviously, it's not always wrong. It's not. We always have to wrong. have a more nuanced stand than than what the Washington Post itself is outlining. For examples like when Elon Musk makes perfectly valid criticism. Yeah, I will say if I to play devil's advocate, I do think that there's a different responsibility for Sagar, obviously, than someone like Elon, who is now sole owner of an entire company, talking about employees in a way that raises certain kind of internal HR implications, right? So I remember when I worked, for example, at the at the Intercept as a journalist, there were some conversations about what you should or should not say about your coworkers on Twitter, how you should handle disputes in the public forum, because there's different implications when you're working together in a workplace. And that's even between journalists and not in a hierarchical boss junior level. And, you know, we had, you know, there was a similar issue that emerged earlier this week where there was this, you know, report about someone talking about, you know, oh, Kim our, on our the show, Hill yeah, on, right, on our right, show, right? We discussed right? that, yeah. And so there's this, I think there is a problem. I think there is a different kind of critique mm-hmm. about whether people are handling internal workplace disputes in the most effective and appropriate manner. And I think that Elon deserves, you know, some some scrutiny here. He has in the past, for instance, used Twitter as a bully pulpit to say to make tweets that were considered to be union busting. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, I think sued for it and had to take the tweet down. Right. So it is possible for him to use his position of authority as a bully pulpit in ways that I think are actually exploitative and wrong. I don't think, however, that third parties like Sagar tweeting obvious criticisms and open criticisms and admitted to criticisms about board members rises to that same standard. Right. right. It's like that's how that's the lens through which they want to cover this story is, oh, look who's going to be targeted for harassment as a result of this. And then I criticize that and then they respond and then it's more more exam. No, now this attacks on the media, too. Yeah. Like they're making themselves the center of a story that, that this is not a real story. Like yeah. the story here was just. Elon Musk shares Twitter's own qu- criticism of the things Twitter has done in the past. Now, he responded actually to my piece on Twitter, and he wrote, uh, The Washington Post targets me relentlessly. Their insults could be higher quality. Some are not bad. I gave them three stars on Yelp. A little, <laughs> little bit of Elon Musk humor there. So, Yeah, how many times, by the way, are, is one of these newspapers going to send an email to someone they're writing a story about with a series of questions where the questions are so embarrassing that screen grabbing the question and posting them ends up humiliating the outlet. I still remember recently uh, Candace Owens managing to pull this off. And, you know, 
you hate to give people credit, but you kind of have to when they're asked something like, you know, why do you, why are you calling the, the Azov battalion Nazis? And he's like, well, here's all of your reporting calling the Nazis. I mean, <laughs> at a certain point, not that I'm giving comms advice to any of these yeah. news outlets, but they should consider vetting <laughs> the questions that are going out from reporters to and it, their and it, was, it was like, it was 2 a.m. And I think, I'm pretty sure the email said something like, you know, I, I appreciate a quick response. You know, this is moving right. really quickly. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what breaking points taping schedules like. Is there anything like ours? I'm in bed by 2 a.m. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm like ready to begin the day almost right. at 2 a.m. to prepare for this show. Right, right. So that was just, uh, yeah, that was kind of hysterical. And, and, and again, and, and for Sagar especially, like obviously he did not, like he, it is valid to create, and this isn't some lowly employee of Twitter. Right. This is a top policy person who's, like, I'm not, I mean, it's not personal. I'm not, she's probably a lovely person. But these de- this decision in particular, the Hunter Biden laptop story decision, was wrong. Twitter agrees that it's wrong. There's really no debate over whether it was wrong at this right. point. But I noted in the Washington Post article, they did not once mention that that was the wrong call, that that story has now been largely substantially validated. So I'm like, are they in denial about that? Yeah, it's more than a river in Egypt. <laughs> Love that joke. <laughs> All right, well, Team Rising will join us next. Stick around for that. That's what unions are about, in my view, about providing dignity and respect for people who bust their neck. That's why I created the White House Task Force on Worker Organization Empowerment, to make sure the choice to join a union belongs to workers alone. And by the way, by the way, Amazon, here we come. That was President Joe Biden in the beginning of April expressing support for unionizing. In fact, the Democratic Party has a deep history of supporting U.S. labor. Dating back to the 1970s, the party supported propping up the backbone of the U.S. workforce, America's workers. We are a long way from those times, of course. Fresh criticism of the party suggests they've left workers hanging out to dry, but continue to play the, quote, underdog in favor of the working class. Now, our next guest, Russell Dalton, is a union tradesman, and he's written this piece for Newsweek, pinpointing exactly how Democrats have been doing the working class wrong, left them without a political party. Russell, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Russell, in your op-ed, you write, quote, our bread is buttered maintaining the coal-fired, gas-fired, and nuclear power plants that scatter this country and provide the only reliable sources of power to keep our iPhones and electric cars charged. Yet as a citizen who casts his ballot like everyone else, I keep asking myself, who represents our interests? To put it succinctly, no one. Can you elaborate on that for us? How have Democrats abandoned the working class of late? Well, they abandoned them back under the Clinton administration with the signing of NAFTA. And ever since then, they've facilitated the wholesale, basically scrapping the country for parts, which really started back under the Reagan administration. And basically just to keep, for no other reason, just to keep the market pumped. And so because growth really ran out in the system back in the mid to late 60s, we've really had to really reconstruct our, like, our companies to basically externalize our cost on society or at the cost of the employees. And so kind of 40, 50 years of that has really transitioned the entire economy. And so what the biggest problem facing labor is that, you know, the number of factories in this country are 
a fraction of what they were. And the nature of employment is different. And so, like, by way of example, what's the difference between, what's the difference of me getting paid $20 an hour, or $80 an hour to go fix a power plant? It's not $60 an hour. It's one-tenth of one cent per customer for a week. Mm. And so, the because that kind of work is gone, the kind of work where the increased cost of labor can be distributed broadly in the system and absorbed with relative ease. Labor is in a real tough fight because like the working class today, I mean, it really is the, you know, the barista with a master's degree serving coffee who can't get a job. And so, you know, to counter from my example, what's the difference between her making $12 an hour and 30? Well, it's the difference between a cup of coffee going for three bucks to eight or nine. That's untenable. And so we just keep moving forward and for, further into this path of like basically entire peasant class who can't afford anything and they can't and the nature of their work can't afford anything like approaching respectable wages. Well, what do you say to people who point to the huge gap that's emerged from the mid part of the last century to now between the average worker pay and the average CEO pay who say, well, that most certainly some of the problem, much of the problem is rooted in these trade deals that disadvantage the American worker and sent so many jobs over overseas. But also part of it is that you have um, CEO to worker pay ratios that are in excess of 300 to 1, whereas at a more profitable time for workers in American history where there was greater union density, it was 30 to 1. How much onus do you put on kind of the extractive, hyper-exploitative kind of system of capitalism that has emerged in a kind of post-regulatory era? Well, I mean, it... I think it's huge, but I don't think it's quite the story that it is. You know, it's like Amazon. I think they have some kind of policy where, like, it's they limit to like thirty or forty to one, something like that. But they make up the difference by just giving these big like, wheelbarrowfuls of stock options to their management, and so they can preach that. You know, there's all these ways. There's all management has all these tricks around all these things, and so while this, the you know this the the sticker cost of like, oh man, three hundred to one is pretty bad. And it is bad. And now, I mean, it, and it's, and their, their, their reasoning behind it is all, is pretty clearly self-serving, you know, so, well, we won't be able to attract a, you know, a competent manager without being able to pay them, you know, 300 times what the peasants are getting paid. And, you know, and the people who actually do the work as well, I mean, management doesn't really do much. I mean, they got to make decisions, but they're not the ones swinging the hammer or mopping the floors. And so, the, yeah, the extractive the extractive cost of management is significant, but I mean, this is more of a systemic issue, it seems like to me. You, you say this reality has left you politically homeless, and you know, you've talked about how you're dissatisfied with the direction the Democratic Party has taken. So, I mean, what about the Republican Party? Obviously, they have uh, rhetorically, at least, tried to make a push for working class voters. But is is that all it is? Is it just rhetoric? Oh sure. I mean, they're 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 playing the same get game that they played in the '90s. You know, it's you know the Christian right of the '90s and the aughts and the progressive left of today are the exact same thing. You know, they're they're both laundering this, you know, neoliberal economic model, corporate corporate and globalizing interests under the culture war. And I mean, that's 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 the game that's being played. What would you like to see coming from the White House and from Democrats in general 
what would you like to see them saying differently, especially going into a, a midterm season where I think lots of folks would like to capitalize on all of the um, kind of labor uprisings that are happening across the country with the Starbucks unionization, uh, you know, popping up all over the place, obviously with this huge Amazon victory. Are people, are working people seeing the Democrats as more responsive in a meaningful way? Are they seeing that there's a meaningful difference in Joe Biden being in office and the NLRB following up and and, and all these claims that Amazon has behaved improperly and illegally in the context of these elections. Is that enough? Is Joe Biden's rhetoric enough? Or would you like to see certain other specific kinds of behaviors and promises being made in the context of this campaign season and beyond? I mean, that's a pretty good question. I mean, talk, I mean, you know, talk is cheap, you know, I mean, so AOC sure talks a good game and now she, and she's, she's sharp. Um, and then he, you know, it, and then when come vote time at the fulfillment center and was it Staten Island, I think it was, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't show up, but she's very happy to show up to the Met Gala or anywhere else that she seems fit. So I mean, this is kind of, you know, what was it? Remind me back in, as soon as Joe Biden got in office, there was that miners strike down in one of the Southern states. I think it was Alabama. Mm-hmm. Bessemer, Alabama. Yeah. Oh, the miner strike. It, yeah. Yeah, it was one of those southern states, and you know, he didn't show up. He, I mean, he may have paid lip service, but you know, it's like you got to show up, and you actually got to make your effect known and felt. And oh, yeah, ahead. yeah. So, I mean, I think you're right that a lot of people, including Chris Smalls, uh, who you know was leading the protest, they were critical of AOC for not showing up. She subsequently did reach out to Chris Smalls and has showed up along with. Uh, Bernie Sanders and some others to ongoing uh, organizing efforts in the area. And he, you know, I think Chris Ma would, would say, you put the pressure on, you criticize the people and then they respond and you're happy that they responded. That's the point of criticism, not to necessarily, um, you know, it, you know, hang them with their mistakes for the rest of their lives. But it is interesting that there, to me, that there's not necessarily a clear understanding of what substance of support looks like other than showing up at these picket lines, which of course is meaningful, but it is also easy to kind of co-opt, I think, which is the point that you're making. And it's not clear how mm. much of that support is going to manifest into real returns for workers down the line from a political perspective. Oh, oh yeah, certainly. You know, Twitter's not real. Tweeting support is not real. You know, like, and the fact that, you know, she, so, I mean, not to pick on AOC, no disrespect to her personally, but when you, when she couches herself in this working class dress, and then, you know, has to be called out when she kind of goes some like that's the that's a problem. You know, the fact that she has to be criticized and then gets to show up and then can somehow try and spin it to look like a hero is I mean, it's, it's all I mean, politics is all game. It's all game. And so it's I mean, and, you know, so like the piece I wrote was pretty vitriolic. But in, you know, we got to kind of understand the position that our politicians are in. I mean, they're being pulled in a million different directions. And the problems and the problems they're facing that we are all facing in the country are so monumental that and then no one really knows what the hell to do. Mm. You know, education doesn't work. Health care doesn't really work. The economy has been stagnant and basically contracting for the last 50 years. And what the hell do you do? It's mm. a good question. Well, we're trying to discuss that <laughs> every day. Yeah, on no the show. And hey, I'm not smart enough to figure it out either. Yeah. You know, but it's like you kind of look around. It's, you know. The system works very well for the top five or ten percent, and it works incredibly poorly for the bottom seventy percent. And there's that middle ten to fifteen percent that's really struggling. You know that that 
up at 70 to 85 percent. They I mean they're living a very precarious existence in this country. And I mean, it's, it's kind of making everyone go insane. You know, it's like everyone just kind of feel the noose getting tightened around the neck in this world. You know, and like the supply chain issue doesn't really seem to be getting solved anytime soon. Yeah. Well, Russell Dalton, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much. Sure appreciate it. We'll have more Rising right after this. Stick around. In the two months since the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine began, Russia has nearly doubled its revenue in fossil fuel exports to the European Union, raking in some 62 billion euro thanks to to soaring gas and oil prices. Just today, however, Russia cut off natural gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria and threatened to do the same to other NATO members in a move condemned by European leaders as blackmail. The EU relies on Russia for about 40 percent of its natural gas imports. Joining us now to discuss is Brittany ramos Tabaros. She's a congressional candidate for New York's 11th District, organizing director of About Face, Veterans Against the War, and an Afghanistan veteran. Welcome back to Rising. So glad to have you with us in studio. Yes, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you with us. Uh, so obviously, you know, tell us what you're thinking right now about what's going on in Ukraine. You know, we, we it's terrible, obviously, the situation there and the death and destruction. We are, though, concerned simultaneously about some expanding, you know, ever broadening uh, war, or, or proxy war turning into an actual war with Russia. You know, what are your, your thoughts about the conflict at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I always try to start with the human element, which is remembering that this is already a full-blown war for Ukrainians who are suffering under these aggressive attacks um, that are unjustifiable. You know, I think we've all said that for several weeks now as we've watched this horrific situation unfold. Um, but when we when we dig deeper, I find myself frustrated as a former army captain and a person who has been in war with you know, the fact that we find ourselves with such limited resources and such limited recourse. Um, You know, we have only invested in one tool for national security for decades, uh, if if not longer, and that is military force projection as a strategy to keep ourselves safe. Hmm. This is a situation that is demonstrating that in a multipolar world, that is not sufficient. We have to invest in diplomacy, in cooperative efforts, in other tools that allow us to have recourse in situations when nation states and when, you know, rogue actors like Putin are, you know, disregarding human life, disregarding what's good for the rest of the world. Um, and that's why we talk, you know, on my platform, we talk about security in conjunction with climate. Um, and a lot of people ask us why, you know, they think that those things don't go together, but it's because of a situation exactly like this. Russia is a petrostate. It is allowed and able to fuel its war right now because of our reliance on fossil fuels um, and global reliance on fossil fuels. And we need a Green New Deal and we need to start transitioning to other other forms of energy to other policies that allow us to move into a more renewable um, energy economy 
so that we can not only make sure that we address climate change and climate crisis, more aptly put, but that we can address the, the petro states like Russia and others yeah. who are allowed to feed off of that dependence. Yeah, I remember, I think it was back in 2016, Bernie said something similar when asked about what the biggest national security threat to the country was. And he said something about climate change and he, they tried to laugh him out of the room. But you're right, this exact situation is what people are concerned about. It is interesting, as we mentioned in the, in the read, that... Although there has been a great deal of enthusiasm for sanctions against Russia as a tool outside of direct military conflict to have you know, political influence, the idea that Russia is now using and restricting its own oil exports in, the, in a similar sort of way is considered to be blackmail. I, I'm curious, how does all of this play in the context of your congressional race, both the kind of environmental piece of it and the kind of military piece of it? I know that you are running to in a race against another Democrat who is a also a veteran. You know, Staten Island is one of the more conservative parts of New York City. You know, how does all of this, both the environmental piece and the kind of uh, military interventionist piece, play in your local politics? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Staten Island is really misunderstood. Mm -hmm. It is definitely, it has more of a conservative streak than the rest of New York City, certainly, not trying to minimize that. But what we also have is an unusually high percentage of unaffiliated active voters. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a lot, we have really low turnout. You know, in the 2018 congressional primary, we had about 11% turnout rounding mm -hmm. up. 11% rounding up. You know, and so what we see is actually the, the majority of Staten Islanders and, you know, parts of New York 11 have really checked out of the process. And when you talk to them, when I was knocking doors in 2018, what I heard the most was, why bother? Nothing in my life ever changes. Hmm. These people come around when they're campaigning and then I never hear from them again. They don't really care about us, both parties, hmm. right? And so we see a real anti-establishment disillusionment with the elitism and disconnectedness of both political parties. And who can be surprised, right? I'm running against, I am the only person in my race right now, Republican or Democrat, who's not a millionaire, mm -hmm. who's a working class person who has actually understood what it feels like to figure out how to pay your rent, mm -hmm. to figure out how to pay for food, who has received notices threatening to kick you out of your home, right? When I was growing right. up and my parents were working multiple jobs. And so that's something that's not really red or blue. It's not really left or right. As Reverend Barber says on the Poor People's Campaign, it's really about top versus bottom mm -hmm. and it's about right versus wrong and you know everywhere from the reliance on petroleum and, and fossil fuels to the corruption of the, the fossil fuel industry and all of the corporations that pour money special interests big real estate right all of these have environmental impacts that also translate to economic and health impacts for our community and our communities recognize that mm -hmm. just now they cut down acres and acres and acres of trees in our only natural wetland in Staten Island. Mm. Staten Island floods every time there's a storm. We literally just had Superstorm Ida where people died mm. because it was so catastrophic. We've had unprecedented numbers of billion dollar damage storms in the last year in the United States alone. And Staten Island and Brooklyn are on the front lines of that. And not only have they not in the last several years, despite their promises, including Max Rose's promises, built up infrastructure appropriately to match what we're up against, 
but they've allowed developers to purchase and destroy the wetlands that are our one natural protection. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, that is deeply connected to what we're seeing overseas. Mm. You can't separate these issues because it all comes back to why can't we get policies passed that the majority of my district, the majority of the American public want? Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, canceling student debt. Why can't we get those passed? Because we have politicians who are more loyal to corporate interests and to the multimillionaires in 1% than they are to everyday people who are facing layered crises right now and need a government that works for them. And, and what do the people in your district think about you know, the Ukraine situation specifically? Because what I, what I think I hear from a lot of people is obviously tremendous sympathy, a desire to help. But then when you hear like out of touch Hollywood elite type people say, oh, yeah, I'll, gla- I'll pay $77 in gas for if it helps Ukraine. And like, but working people can't do that. They, they might want what's best for Ukraine, but they, they cannot stomach that suffering here. And, and, and that's not unreasonable uh, to, to be concerned about that. So, so do you hear that, that sentiment in the people you, know, you want to represent? Absolutely. I mean, we have working families that were, are facing eviction as the eviction moratorium expired, still don't have good cause protect, protect, protections, which we need to pass at both the New York state and federal level. That's something I would fight for in Congress, um, not to mention the health impacts and environmental impacts that we've talked about. And now they're facing growing prices. Of course, people are freaking out. You know, I mean, that is a lot for working families. That's why and they shouldn't have to stomach the cost of that. You know, I'm, I'm really sick of millionaires making policies without really considering working class or poor, working poor often Americans. There's, there's um, precedent for creating price caps for gasoline and other essential goods that would shield the American public and working families in my district and across the country and make sure that the, the you know we're able to institute this you know whatever sanctions or actions we need to take in order to do our best to curb Russia's aggression but making sure that working families in the United States are not bearing the brunt of that um, I put out a call for those price caps I think over a month ago at this point um, you know unfortunately others um, in my race have not joined me mm-hmm. in that. But that is a very simple, well-precedented, temporary uh, support for working families to make sure that they can continue to get by in the midst of, um, you know, these, these uh, hopefully what is a movement towards de-escalation and not, and not full-blown world war. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll continue this conversation in just a minute. Federal investigators say they have concerns, but have chosen not to punish Amazon after several of their employees were killed while on the clock in an Amazon warehouse last December. Six people were killed when a tornado smashed through an Amazon fulfillment center in Edwardsville, Illinois, causing the partial collapse of the building. Our next guest has been outspoken in her criticism of Amazon's cozy relationship with the federal government. Let's watch. $400 in tax subsidies. You know what we could use that for? We could use that for a new deal for CUNY. We could use that for transportation so that workers can get here without sleeping in their cars in this parking garage right here. That's 400 million of our tax dollars 
Now, Jeff Bezos owes us back, and together here, we are demanding that they give us our goddamn money back. Brittany Ramos-Tabarro is a congressional candidate for New York's 11th District, organizing director of About Face, Veterans Against the War, and an Afghanistan veteran. And she joins us now in studio. Welcome back. Thank you so much. And we're sorry we made you watch yourself on television. It's, it's painful whenever it happens to us. I, it never gets less awkward. So, so tell us you know, about um, your, your organizing efforts here, obviously, that... Amazon, uh, it's, it was terrible. People actually died. Uh, you know, talk to us about what you're advocating for in terms of better workplace safety and Amazon and, and other uh, workhouses. Yes. Well, for anyone who doesn't know, um, the JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island, where I live, um, which is part of the district where I'm running for Congress, is the first Amazon facility in America anywhere, really, to unionize. And you know, let me tell you about these workers. Whenever I went there just to say what's up or to show solidarity, drop off coffee, whatever I could do in a small way, they were often huddled around a small fire to keep warm mm. in freezing temperatures. Mm. They were out there in scorching heat that most of us would pass out in if we were out there for too long. You know, month after month, they were out there with their tent organizing. And they demonstrate a kind of grit that we just don't see enough mm. in organizing anywhere in the United States. Um, it was incredibly inspiring for me to see and to continue to see the second vote for the second warehouse is underway right now. Um, you know, but the first time I went to their press conference, I was supposed to say something. And by the time I got up to speak, I was just, I was ugly crying because <laughs> I was listening to the stories of a daughter who lost her mother, mm. her mother who said she loved her job and was a committed worker. Mm. She cared, she was invested, and she agreed to give COVID tests on behalf of Amazon and ended up dying mm. um, because they didn't have the appropriate PPE and because medical professionals should have been doing that job, especially early in the pandemic where we were still learning a lot. Um, you know, and, and in the aftermath of that, they were they were given a you know sorry that happened and that's mm. pretty much it. We've had people die in the parking lot of our Staten Island facility. We I listened to stories and testimony of workers saying that they were penalized mid-pandemic for taking a water break that was too long mm. when you have to walk, you know, 7 minutes to get across the facility to even get to a water, mm. a fountain of any kind or to get to a break room. Um, you know, the conditions are just the things that you would think that you would hear out of a 1930s novel yeah. um, that, that the labor movement has fought so hard and yet we have so far to go. And so, you know, I am outspoken. I feel like some people probably watch that video and are like, whoa, why are you yelling? But as far as I'm concerned, when you, when you really understand what these workers are going through, getting paid poverty wages mm -hmm. in a facility when Amazon has received over 400 million in state tax subsidies in New York alone. And part of the agreement for those subsidies was that they wouldn't violate right. labor protections, and, and, that is and they have. That is appalling and absolutely so against those subsidies. I like, if they want to headquarter, if, when they, they headquartered here, Amazon came to DC, I said they want to do that anyway because business right. lives here. Of course yeah. they're going to pick DC. You don't need to, you don't need to you know, roll out the red carpet. Just yeah. let them 
pay for it as it should be paid. So the, well, the, ca- the counter-narrative, of course, absurd. that people say, the argument that is made, and I'm sure that you've had to respond to, is without these subsidies, they would go someplace cheaper. It's expensive to build in New York. We have to. This is a, a job creation program. I know that when AOC was advocating against a plant moving years ago, she got a lot of pushback from people saying that she was you know, ending jobs. And it was before a lot of the... Um, enthusiasm around this new labor, not new, but newly resurging labor movement kind of offered some buffer for that. I wonder, do you end up having to make that case to folks who have heard, oh, well, these subsidies are what brought me this job? Uh, And how do you push back against that? I will tell you that no one I have met, and I have probably talked to thousands of workers at our Amazon facilities in Staten Island alone, no one has said, but I'm grateful I have this job because tax subsidies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No one feels that way who is actually working there. They say, I wish I had job security Mm -hmm. because computers fire people. The turnover is some astronomical percentage every six months because they just have computers firing people for nothing, basically. And that's not a good job because you can't depend from one month to the next whether you're actually going to be able to pay your family. They're getting essentially what come down to poverty wages, hours cut if they dare speak out about those things, doxed pay every time they take a water break or, or just a break that is one minute too long. Um, when they're working 18-hour days. The labor movement fought for 12-hour days to be a thing and, and less, right? And, and you, have, you have sometimes people working 18-hour days sleeping in their car homeless hmm. because they're getting paid so little despite working that amount that they can't afford to, to have a home in New York City literally sleeping in their cars in the parking garage and then going back to work and then being harassed because they needed a water break for a little bit longer. Yeah. Injuries are up 15% mm. 20 to uh, 2020 to 2021. That's by Amazon's own reporting. Mm. So I can only imagine how much more it is as a person in the army who saw the ways that, you know, bureaucracies are able to kind of say, oh no, you're actually fine mm. when you're not. I can only imagine what the actual number is if their reported number is 15%. Think about that. 15% of Amazon workers is thousands and thousands and thousands of workers that are getting injured on the job that probably don't even have access to, to proper health care. Yeah. So you, you did mention that you visited the facility several times, and I we saw you there uh, giving those remarks with Chris Malls, who's you know now renowned for his advocacy here. Also renowned for making some criticisms of the fact that many politicians didn't show up before now. And of course, more, most pointedly, he made some criticisms of AOC. Subsequently, both she and Bernie have shown up to, to some of these um, rallies. I wonder what you make of that and whether or not you also feel that other politicians, perhaps also the politicians that are in this race with you, haven't been as invested in the labor movement on the ground as would be helpful in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the question that we should be asking them repeatedly. I can't speak to, I think that every elected official, every candidate who thinks that they, um, you know, should be able to serve the people of Staten Island and Brooklyn should be there constantly showing up for them. And they haven't been until all the cameras showed up, mm-hmm. right? And and that's not, you know, I, I am so honored to be endorsed by Chris Smalls himself mm-hmm. and several of the other organizers, obviously not ALU because ALU, you know, is just getting started and it wouldn't be appropriate for them to get directly involved in endorsements. 
Um, but you know, it's because I've been there for months mm -hmm. building a real relationship with them and that we understand that Staten Island is poised to be an epicenter mm -hmm. of groundbreaking working class organizing. That's what my campaign is about. That's what their campaign is about and several others. And we're building together. And I think that they see that I'm real about that. And, you know, I also am really proud of Chris Smalls for his leadership mm. in saying, look, organizing and accountability is also about welcoming people back in. It's about yeah. second chances. Um, you know, that is a kind of leadership that we need mm. in movement um, because we're all we got. At the end of the day, we're up against people who have immense wealth and power. And I believe that we can win, but we need more working class people in positions of power in, in every sector, whether that's government, whether that's unions, right? Whether that's, you know, um, movement and other organizations. Um, but what that means is that we have to be willing to do the hard work of being in principled struggle with each other as we work through the contradictions of trying to navigate you know, running for office or being an elected official or being an organizer while everything sometimes feels like it's on fire around you all at the same time. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I was really moved by that show of leadership. I hope more organizers look at that and see what it looks like to to kind of, you know, issue accountability, but to, but to add that accountability means welcoming back mm -hmm. in, right? It means mm -hmm. res restoration and it yeah. means repair so that we can be powerful because an organized working class is the most terrifying thing to the oligarchs that are controlling our government right mm -hmm. now. And that's what we have to be building. And we have to be building that even when it's complicated and difficult sometimes. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. So happy to have you here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary and former mayor, always known as Mayor Pete, I think, uh, had some interesting remarks uh, explaining the possible hypocrisy of attending the White House Correspondents' Dinner where there will not be a masking requirement versus the Biden administration fighting in court to keep the ability to require masks on airplanes. Let's take a listen to that. Are you going to that White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend? I think I will, yeah. So the fact that Dr. Fauci is not going, does that send a signal? Does it say something? I mean, what should people interpret from that? Well, I think, as he said, that's his personal assessment of his personal risk. And I think we are moving into a phase where that's where a lot of the decision-making is going to lie, right? We're, we're seeing, uh, of course, there are ups and downs, and maybe there will be more. But generally, we've seen a move where you've got fewer and fewer general requirements for everybody. And more and more, it's on you as an individual, as a shopper, as a traveler, for I got example, it, but to decide. just when I introduced you, I was talking about the Justice Department appealing that ruling to keep the mask mandate for public transportation right up your alley. Yeah. I mean, it, don't you think voters will look at that and hold the Biden administration or Democrats uh, kind of responsible for something that they really don't want? Well, the main consideration there isn't the politics of it. It's making sure there's clarity on the public health authority that the CDC has. In other words, that would be important to pursue, even if they're not going to use it, right? If, even if they determine well, they were talking about trains, planes, buses, that the mandate's no longer needed. And as you recall, it was actually set to expire within a few days of right now anyway. I know, but just let me sit. If you're sitting at home, you just told me you're going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The president's going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You're not mandated to wear a mask there. But the administration at the same time is fighting a lawsuit to mandate people on planes, trains, and automobiles, or trains and buses to wear masks. So, like, if you're sitting at home, there's a disconnect here. 
Well, I think uh, most of us understand the difference between a hotel ballroom and an airplane. And uh, again... Do you understand the difference between a hotel ballroom and an airplane? I, my basic understanding is that, based on what airline industry experts, all the CEOs testified, is that the air quality, because the air is recycled or is, is circulated, uh, air filtrated, it is better than, your, than what you would encounter in a hotel yeah, ballroom. Yeah, at least when you're in the air. Ta- when you're, when right. you're taxiing. Well, also, you're not, you're not, th- this is a disease, that's, a disease that spreads by talking and laughing and eating and drinking. Most people, I, look, I'm sure it can spread it on an airplane, and there is some chatter on the airplane, but generally people sit silently or, like, even sleep on the airplane. Mm-hmm. Like, at, at the party, you're going to be talking and shouting and, and projecting. The, 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 the droplets, the respiratory droplets will be, will be spreading. Yeah, look, I... Seems way riskier than the plane. I think that you're right. They say that on an airplane, you're generally only sharing air with the people that are kind of proximate to you a few seats away. And in a ballroom, who knows what the ventilation situation will be there. But I think the, the, the confusion is right. If Anthony Fauci decides he doesn't want to go because he thinks it's at personal risk to himself, well, what are those risk factors? Because many people are basically being told it's safe to get on a plane which might have commensurate level of risk. People are a commensurate kind of age group and other kind of uh, you know, vectors that he has to get on a plane. You know, what, what are we talking about here? Why is it okay for people to judge to go to the event and safe for people to judge and not safe for Anthony Fauci? Maybe there are reasonable reasons. Maybe it has nothing to do with safety and Anthony Fauci just doesn't want to go, which, you know, right. I understand completely. But again, it's the complete and total lack of consistency. To your point about the airplanes, I think it's completely true about air circulating. But as, a, as someone who sat on the runway for a long time at, over a tra- during the course of travel this week, I'm sitting there very conscious of the fact that air is not circulating for the 20, 30 minutes we're on the runway, and I'm in a, in a metal tube with people, none of whom are masked now, and many of whom are eating and drinking even when the mask requirements were in place. And maybe nobody talks to you on the plane. Whoa. Even, I've got Whoa. one of those faces. There's some chatty Cathy's that always want to strike up a conversation with uh, me. Nobody tries to talk to me. <laughs> I'm head down in my, uh, I just play, I play the Nintendo Switch for the entire flight. Yeah. So look, what what is the difference? What is and reporters need to stop letting people get away with this. Also, what is the difference between an airplane and a and a ballroom that you think makes it dispositive for you to treat the ballroom as some place where you can go, but Anthony Fauci to not think the ballroom is a place where he can go? Uh, Buttigieg also, but he was clear in that what the Biden administration is wants to do with respect to challenging this ruling is to preserve the right is to hold on to the power, is to hold on to the CDC's power to implement and force on Americans in under specific conditions some infringement on their freedoms based on authority that was never granted to the CDC. And if you want to grant it to the CDC, grant it. Then fine, Congress okay. can grant that authority. Whether or not the authority is granted to the CDC is the whole point of the ruling, right? So it's right. not that it wasn't granted. It's that some people are disputing in this, you know, judge who some, you know, a lot of people have critiqued their experience the validity of this legal ruling. I did so in one of my radars last week. You know, she came to the determination that the authority wasn't there. But let's not pretend this is some unelected fiat. The legislature designated, you know, delegated the authority to the CDC as an independent governing body with expertise on public health matters to have authority in exactly these kinds of circumstances. Now, you can agree with her reading that somehow sanitation doesn't cover 
air quality and all of the things that are germane to keeping people from getting COVID. But at the end of the day, there's not a question that the CDC has authority in these public health issues. It's whether or not the laws can be so narrowly read, the language of the statute can be so narrowly read to uh, do something like, uh, the, as I argued in the radar last week, say an airplane can't have a preventative measure to keep sewage from overflowing in the airplane. It can only do, it can only clean up after the sewage is all over the floor. And if that's the kind of reading that you want from the statute, okay, then you don't, you know, you think that they don't have authority. But what he's saying is there are going to be other instances down the line where the CDC has to act like the CDC. It's got to do its job. And this ruling could be read to say that it doesn't have the basic authority that was delegated to it to have any public health control. I mean, what the CDC has demonstrated to me throughout this pandemic is that it should be shut down immediately. That it, that it, it, it for all the good it's done, it, it did worse. It sabotaged the rolling out of tests. It's issued uh, bizarre and contradictory guidance throughout the pandemic. It's kept our toddlers wearing masks uh, for longer than any other group of people, even though they're the least at risk people. At at no level, I don't think the public has confidence in the CDC. I think they are. it is reasonable to not have confidence on them. And if legislators want to grant them the updated authority to deal with something like a pandemic, then they should do that and well, face you know, the accountability of the, of the people. Well, it's not going to happen. Because they is, won't do it because the people don't trust no, the CDC the for good reason. No, because the system is designed so that our legislator, our Congress, is designed to have grid, gridlock. It's part of the purpose. The founding fathers understood that you actually don't want there to be a direct democracy because the direct democracy is antithetical to the interests of the elites that have always Congress, in its wisdom, thinks the CDC should have more authority to deal with this kind of thing. I'd love to see a vote on it. Okay, so the reality of this situation is that even even if you believe that there's a problem with the attenuation between um, people's votes in the legislature and democracy and what the CDC has been able to do, I want everyone to consider what free-for-all exists if there is no CDC. If your concern is that the CDC has been captured by corporate interests or it's been driven to open up where we shouldn't have opened up because of business interest or to to, to lie about masking because it wants to preserve them for this population or that population, those same interests have the same incentives to weigh on whatever unelected you know, private enterprise is going to be making these decisions and ruling I, I, in a world I, without the CDC. I think it's been captured by bureaucratic interests, by, by its own interests, by the interests of, by, by, it wants to expand its bureaucracy and its power and its ability to impact our lives because that's what bureaucratic agencies do. They grow, they, they take on more people, they worm their ways into more facets of our life, they take over more of the government. And then the other point I would make is that Okay, fine. Congress is dysfunctional. They're not actually going to do their jobs. They're not going to do anything. So people can't be, the consequence of that is that decisions that ought to be, or under the understanding of how our government is supposed to work, ought to be left to Congress, are increasingly questions for courts because courts are not as dysfunctional as Congress is. They're extremely arguable. I think they're not. Well, Congress like literally doesn't perf- like even perform its job, right? There, there, there's no d- debate and votes being had. There's just two parties. But if your it's issue is unaccountability, then the courts are completely unaccountable by design. I'm not saying that's necessarily the concern, although there's some questions. What, about what I mean limits. is that there is a l- actual, the legislative function of our government increasingly takes place in the courts. Right, which yeah. is something that conservatives historically have had an issue with, although it's, right. again, baked into the, the cake, and there's no such thing as a liberal activist judge. Both sides have taken every opportunity to pr- promote their 
legislative agenda. I think I am more court. in favor of activist judiciary than, I mean, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a typical conservative, but then the average conservative certainly. But, okay. Uh, well, look, the, I think the, the takeaway from this conversation should be is every, the, your read on whether or not a particular instance is overreach or appropriate, whether you prefer the legislative branch as more democratic or judicial branch as being able to do what the legislator, legislature can't do, it's, it's dependent on what your substantive worldview is. It has nothing to do with these institutions because you can read it every way. It's the same thing that's happening in a lot of these free speech arguments. Everyone thinks they're doing a free speech, but it can, completely depends on the underlying speech and well, whether or not you think it has value. And there are some people who are more consistent or less consistent in the context of these conversations. But ultimately, I wish you were having the conversation about the thing more often than these proxy wars about what the Federalist paper said and X, Y, and Z. Oh, fair enough, all of it's fair a, largely a moot point. Do you think that science is dictating appropriately the regulations that are coming down around mask mandates and vaccines? I think the answer is no. And I think that you think the answer is no it's as no. well. And, you know, how we fix that, I think, is going to be an ongoing concern for our conversations. Maybe Mayor Pete can get right on that when he's <laughs> done partying this weekend. Hope he has a fun time. We'll have more rising right after this. Vice President Kamala Harris has tested positive for COVID-19, her office shared yesterday. The vice president plans to isolate until she tests negative. However, President Biden will not be quarantining. The Veep is not considered a close contact. Did you get that? Not a close contact? It's hilarious. <laughs> the administration maintains that Vice President Harris is asymptomatic, leading some experts to question her use of the Paxlovid COVID-19 antiviral treatment pill. As reported by the New York Post, quote, Paxlovid is designed to reduce severe symptoms among high-risk patients, which has some experts questioning why it would be prescribed to a healthy, double-boosted, and asymptomatic 57-year-old patient. Just this week, the Biden administration expanded Americans' access to Paxlovid. In clinical trials, the drug has been shown to reduce the risk of COVID hospitalization by 90%. So I don't know. I, I mean, I guess you can say, well, she's she's not like other people. She's an important the person. Next in line to so lead the free world. And, yeah, I get it. But on the same, by the same token, it, it is bad optics. Yeah. You know, and that's not the only part of this. Is this bad optics? Um, people were commenting on the fact that she said she was going to stay out until she tested negative longer than the CDC recommendation of five days to go back to work regardless. And so, again, it's this do what I say, not what I do. They just don't need her back in the you. office until. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, did you see the, pic- the picture they released of her hard at work, working from home that I think her husband posted? It's one of these kind of. Everyone does it. I don't mean to pick on her in particular, but these kind of charming stage shots where there's no computer to be seen. You know, like when you're watching a Tyler Perry movie and it's like, I'm out of office, but there's like no When I'm watching no a desk. Tyler Perry movie. <laughs> I've never watched a Tyler Perry movie before. I don't, know, I don't know your, your life, Rob. I'm not trying to put you in a box. Especially when you're kind of watching a cheaply made movie when they haven't given much, given much thought to like how to stage the person as the profession they're supposed to have. Oh, I'm an architect, so I'm wearing these glasses, oh, right? Sure. But they're just... They're, sure. it, I've got a wrench, so I'm it's a... Got a wrench. So a wrench repairment? No, you use the wrench for repairs. <laughs> but, you know, she's sitting at a desk with, like, a piece right. of paper and pen in front of her. And maybe, look, Naturally. I don't know what it takes to be the vice president. Maybe there's a lot of paper writing documents. Writing by hand. <laughs> what has to review? A lot of writing by hand, yeah. If, if you don't have a computer in front of you, you're not doing work, is the reality of, uh, of, of in, a, in a white-collar working environment. Correct, <laughs> correct, correct. So, you know, it is what it is. You know, she takes her licks. But I think the real concern here is that, you know, I've had people in my life 
people in her age bracket and, and older who have recently, you know, gotten COVID and been, you know, told they have to return to the office by a different metric than someone like Kamala Harris and in ways that seem to be obviously against common sense science. You know, it's not about whether you're not a test negative. It's about whether, you, you know, five days out, you're supposed to go back. And that to me, like, I know that we're coming from this COVID skepticism from a different perspective. I think you would like there to be less restrictions and I, I don't want them to be more, but I do want them to be more finely uh, mm -hmm. attuned to what would actually prevent the spread of COVID if we believe that there are things you could do to prevent the spread of COVID. And moments of, again, political theater, COVID theater like this yeah. don't help. I think she could go ahead and take the rest of the year. She <laughs> <needs to. laughs> I mean, the bit about not being considered a close contact. I mean, it's, it's an easy gag, but also just consider what that means about how frequently she must not be meeting with the with president. The president. Yeah. It's truly like, I, I am re-watching, I just finished re-watching it, uh, Veep, mm. which is where Selena Meyer, the, mm -hmm. played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, is always, in the early seasons at least, before she becomes the president. Can I, I, does the, did the president ask for me? Can mm -hmm. I meet with him? And, and the president's never shown because mm -hmm. he's not, they don't need to show him because she never gets an audience with him. Mm -hmm. And maybe into the, your point <sighs> about Veep, it's maybe not a Kamala Harris specific thing and maybe it's no. not fair to say that this is, you know, she's particularly, like, a, a particularly impotent VP. But it doesn't help with all of the leaks that have come out of her office over the course of the past year and all of the staff fleeing to have this as the cherry on top. It's a difficult job because it's not really a job. There's not a lot to do. You know, it's really just to smooth out the ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, but given that that is really the only exp uh, expectation, I would not say she's done particularly well. I, she, she doesn't seem to... Bring a, she's not. She's less popular than he is. Um, I don't think she's more popular than he is with any specific demographic. I nope. don't think there are people, black people never supported Kamala right, Harris. Bernie right, out right. blanked her. She couldn't win her own state. All of these things down the line. There was this belief that she was going to bring black voters in, and you can still see uh, Joe Biden really trying to milk the Supreme Court pick, really emphasizing these symbolic elements. I heard uh, he spoke with the CBC Congressional Black Caucus about a month ago, and there's all this emphasis on Juneteenth and all of these issues that are ultimately very superficial when you look at the things that black voters are asking for, especially in the context of the summer of 2020. And I don't know that that's going to keep working. I think a lot of people are hip to the game at this point. Mm -hmm. And if we were picking black women who are going to bring a new constitu constituency to Joe Biden, you know, he could consider a leftist pick for this easy uh, desk job going forward. <laughs> Look, I can sit here and pretend to write on a piece of paper all day. <laughs> all day. <laughs> Even without COVID, you know? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Absolutely. Brianna, Brianna for VP. No, I don't want to lose another co-host, so no, bad idea. But, uh, but otherwise, yes. Uh, it, the, the whole, I don't know, I want Paxlovid to be available to more Americans. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, whatever administrative hangups are in the way, and I'm sure there were considerable ones, you know, we, the CDC could have moved, the FDA could have moved a thousand times faster, I'm sure. Uh, it, it's great that this really does seem to work in the, in the cases where you get it early enough and you were going to have a severe outcome. But uh, so maybe we should probably get to a point where we just have enough of it and it's, it's approved enough to, to, I guess, to give to everyone over a certain mm -hmm. age, probably, if they're diagnosed. But I don't think that would have applied really in Kamala's case. Yeah. I mean, again, she is second in line. And I understand right. that there's, there are some reasonable different standards here. Uh, but it's not a good look. When my, when my grandparents got it, my, my, my grandfather is, mm. is an older man. I think he's almost 90. Mm. And uh, they were you know, vaccinated, they're fine case. And, uh, and they, did, they didn't get very sick. But I remember talking to my mom on the phone and being like, well, are they going to give 
They're going to give grandpa the, 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 the whatever it's called. I didn't know what it was called at the time. Mm. And apparently they thought no because he had a very mild case. Uh, Interesting. But isn't the I point that, that was, you give it early enough before you know right. if it's going to be a mild case? That's what I was case? saying, yeah, on the phone. But <laughs> Right. Then I'm like, am I the doctor? Am I the expert? Like, shouldn't you? Again, I, I don't mean to be disparaging of the medical profession, but it was like, shouldn't that just be what is done in this case? And it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm glad that he's. Fine. So the doctor recommended yeah, no, fine, the recommended advice yes. worked out. But, I, but older people should. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's weird. But so so Kamala is gonna gonna be down for the count for for five days. So did she say she announced that she's gonna stay longer? Is that's what she no, said? No, she said she's gonna stay out uh, until she tests negative. Until she tests negative, right. which, which seems be... very reasonable to me, but is not what other people are asked to do. Some right because you can continue. Well, you can continue to test positive though, correct, and be no longer presumably able to spread it, right? Because you could have dead particles of the virus. Well, so I took a I took a new uh, uh, last week. The audience probably remembers when I dramatically lost my voice (laughs) on set, uh, succumbed to uh, uh, bronchitis in the middle of this broadcast. So I did go home and take uh, make sure I didn't have COVID. So I took one of these new tests, or I've never taken this one before. I actually had to download an app on my phone, which I did not like. Yeah, uh, and then you set. I, no, I didn't like. Well, I don't like having more apps. And, and anything that asks you to download an app on your phone, I'm like please, God no. So then you set the test next to the phone, and you know you do, you swab the nostrils, you stick the thing in the test, and then a timer starts on your phone, and after 15 minutes, you can it, it then it tell it reads the t- like it's electronic, like it's oh, Bluetooth thing with the phone. So that was a, so I assume that test was more accurate, I guess, I because do not that's a lot that of. <laughs> There's a lot more steps than just the, the other ones. Yeah, but, and more it costs steps. like $30, more bureaucracy. $30 that's, that's, or something. Well, that's what makes things right, I, my libertarian what, friend. That's what we're, so, we're supposed to feel. <laughs> so I felt very confident in my, in my, negative, my negative results. Well, I'm glad. Here I, I am uh, a mere four days later. <laughs> <laughs> you, you love to see it, Robbie. <laughs> All right. Tomorrow on Rising, we will pass the baton over to Ryan Grimm and Emily Chachinsky for their new Friday show, Rising Fridays. And they have some great stuff planned for you, so you don't want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, that's me, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yes, definitely check that out. And we'll see you, we will see you next week. Watch Ryan and Emily show tomorrow and take care. Goodbye.